0: I to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. Uh, our sermon text today is Hebrews 8 verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew rack there in front of you. And we'd invite you to follow along with our text uh, in that Bible. If you've been with us, you know uh, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews together here at Bloomfield Baptist Church. And as we have, uh, we've seen how the writer of Hebrews has made very clear the point that Jesus is our great high priest. And he's talked about the, the old covenant, the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood, and, and how that all pointed towards Jesus and how Jesus is so much greater and so much better as our high priest. And, and now we come to the text today where he begins to unpack for us why Jesus is better, why, why he offers a better covenant and a better hope and better promises. And so we're going to divide this chapter in two. We'll look at the first six verses today. And out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read for us our sermon text for today. This is what the inspired Holy Word of God says. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a High Priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places and the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since There are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises you would pray with me father we thank you that we can gather today under this great high priestly ministry of jesus christ this this better covenant the the better hope that we have the the better promises that have been made And I pray in these moments as we walk through this text together that you would help us to see how it is that this is better. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. That term better is one that we've seen a number of times so far in Hebrews, and the writer continues to use it, and so it's important for us to ask the question, what makes something better? What makes something best? If you think about it, those are pretty subjective terms. We have contests all the time. Different communities will vote on who's the best restaurant or who's got the best service. We, we boast about having the best of something, and yet it's a very subjective reference. It's up to someone's opinion, their personal persuasion. I remember thinking about this quite clearly a number of years ago when I was a college student. I spent a summer in Eastern Europe doing ministry there, and we would travel from city to city, country to country, throughout Eastern Europe. And in one particular city, we were looking for a place to eat, and we were walking down uh, this main street there in the city, and there was a billboard or a little chalkboard out on the sidewalk, and in English it said, The World's Best Hamburger. And I thought, how fortunate am I that here I am on the other side of the world and I just happen to be in the place that has the world's best hamburger. So, of course, I went in and I had no choice but to order the world's best hamburger because it's the world's best hamburger. But it wasn't the world's. It wasn't even the world's most mediocre hamburger. It it wasn't very good at all. And yet it had that title, the the best. Well, we throw those terms around, we throw those titles around, but they're so subjective, they're just up to our opinion. What, What you may feel is best, someone else may feel isn't that good at all. But it's important for us to recognize when we come to the Word of God, these are not subjective references. These are not God's opinions. These are objective truths. And the objective truth of God's Word is that when God says something is better, it indeed is better. And when God says something is best, it is indeed best. And in our sin nature, we may push against that and we may refuse God's best only to find over time that it is indeed true that God's best is best. That God's better is better. And when it comes to this understanding that Jesus is our great high priest, when we understand that and get our minds around it, we can indeed see how much better it is than this old covenant, than this old Levitical priesthood. Well, what a great, wonderful thing it is that, that we can come into this place today and we can worship under the name of Jesus. I hope we can grow in appreciation for what that truly means as we walk through this text today and consider that question I put there in your outline. Uh, What is better about the high priestly ministry of Jesus? Why why is it better? Well, we begin with that first point there. It's better because Jesus ministers to us from heaven. Notice in verse 1 and 2 how Emphatic, the writer is on helping us to see where it is that Jesus' ministry comes from, where, where the location is of this ministry. He says, now here's the point. We have such a great high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. And we've talked about how significant that is, that, that picture of Jesus sitting As we studied in the book of Exodus and as we've reviewed in our study of Hebrews, God gave very specific instructions to Moses and the people about the tabernacle during the Exodus. And in those instructions, He told them exactly what was to be placed in the holy place and in the most holy place and and, and the altar and the table for the bread and the golden lampstand. And and we have this picture of where everything is to go and what everything is to look like and, and absent from that picture. Is a chair. So there's no place to sit. And that's intentional because, in this Levitical priesthood, in this Old Covenant picture, we have a perpetual. Sacrifice. We have year after year of offerings. And so the high priest would go into that most holy place on an annual basis and would offer a sacrifice for himself first because he was a sinner and then one on behalf of the people. And this was repeated year after year after year. But the picture we have here in Hebrews is that Jesus' sacrifice, his offering was once for all finished he can sit at the right hand that's why we don't have a depiction of jesus on the cross he's not continually suffering for our sins he has paid it all it is finished so it's significant here that we read that jesus is seated but not just that he's seated where he is seated Writer of Hebrews here says he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The picture is that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is a, a picture in ancient times in royal settings of power and authority. That the one who sat at the right hand of the king spoke on behalf of the king. That the one who sat at the right hand of the ruler had power and authority that was given to them by the ruler. This is where we get our common expression, someone's our right-hand man. That there's someone who speaks on our behalf. They, they share decision-making. Well, here we have this picture that Jesus at the right hand of the Father, He has full authority and power. That's why Jesus Himself says in the Great Commission, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to And so we see this picture on one hand of the the finished work of Jesus. He's made his offering. He's made his sacrifice. And at the same time, we see this picture of an ongoing ministry of Jesus that he rules with power and authority. And he continues to minister, not to make a sacrifice, an offering, but as the writer of Hebrews has plainly shown us in chapter 7, verse 25, he is our mediator, our intercessor, He is praying on our behalf. He is interceding with the Father on our behalf. That's why we mentioned we we, we don't go to God through any other name but the name of Jesus. He's the one with the power. He's the one in authority. And He's the one at the right hand of the Father. And this picture of Jesus in the presence of God reminds us that as He is ministering to us and for us, His ministry is perfect without flaw. Jesus is the one who is uniquely able to minister to your needs and my needs absolutely perfectly. And that's significant because the writer of Hebrews here makes a distinction between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of anyone else. And he says there at the end of verse 2 that he is the one who's the true tent that the Lord has set up. He's not saying that in heaven that God has erected a physical tabernacle. In fact, when you study the Scriptures, you see that Jesus is the tabernacle. He, he is the one who dwells in God's presence and invites us into the presence of God. And when we read the Scriptures and the Gospels, and it talks about Jesus dwelt among us, that word in the Greek for dwelt actually means He, he tabernacled among us. He, he's the true tent. He, he's the means through which we enter into the presence of God. And He is perfectly able to minister to us. And this is something that no one else can do. And certainly man cannot do. And God established in the Old Testament that priests, ministers, who would minister on God's behalf to the people, but it was very clear that they were not perfect. That they had sin. That they fell short. And so we don't lift high the, the minister. We don't lift high the Christian. We, we lift high Christ. And yet, in the church today, it seems at times we get these things Confused. I know that as a pastor, as a minister, as a believer, that I, I will let people down. I have let some of you down. I will let many of you down. I, I will disappoint. My, my role is not to be perfect. My role is to point you towards the one who is perfect. And the longer I have to minister here, the more of my imperfections you'll see. But prayerfully, the more that will point you towards the perfection of Jesus Christ. I had the opportunity in our first service to baptize John Clayton Rogers. And as I was preparing for that, I was reminded that nine years ago, I interviewed with a search committee. And John Clayton's mom, Sarah, was on that search committee. And she was pregnant with John Clayton then. (laughs) it was just kind of a snapshot. I remember praying for him before he was born and when he was born for today, for this day to come when he would publicly profess his faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that God gives me many more years of ministry here, but I'm certain of this. The longer I'm here, the more opportunity that is for, for me to disappoint you. In fact, we, we kept a record of it at my last church I was at. I was there for about eight years and I was in an associate pastor role there in Bowling Green and, and I switched roles several times. In fact, I served in four positions there, and the way the church was structured, uh, each time you moved into a different position, the church had to vote. So I got voted on four times when I was there, and I picked up more no votes each time, because <laughs> I had more time to disappoint people. I'd probably have more no votes today than I had nine years ago, and that, that's just kind of our nature. The, the people that you know the best, well, they can point out your imperfections very quickly, can't they? And the problem for us is so often we tend to look to people to fix us. We tend to go to people expecting they have the answer. Sometimes that's a pastor. Sometimes that's just another Christian. Sometimes that's a mentor. But they're not designed to do that. Jesus Christ is the only one who is perfectly able to minister to us. And our role as Christians isn't to walk around trying to fix each other, it's to point one another to Jesus Christ. He is the perfect minister. And that's why it's so much better. It's not just that. Point two, we see that the high priestly ministry of Jesus is better because Jesus fully atoned for our sin. And we can't skip over this mention of what it is Christ has done for us, that death that he's paid for us and verses three and four here we're reminded of the difference between the function of these earthly the levitical priests and the function of this heavenly high priest in jesus and in fact if you caught it there the the writer actually says that that jesus couldn't do the earthly ministry and that might confuse us well you mean jesus couldn't do that Well, the writers already established that in order to serve as a Levitical priest, you had to be born from the tribe of Levi. Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. So he didn't didn't meet that requirement. He he comes from outside of that. That's why we had that whole comparison to Melchizedek and the importance of that and how Jesus can still serve as a priest, but he's not of that Levitical priesthood. But it's not just a family issue. It's also a, a function issue. Because if you notice here, the writer talks about how The earthly priests, these Levitical priests, their responsibility was to go and make a sacrifice on behalf of the people on an ongoing basis. But before they could do that, they had to make a sacrifice on behalf of themselves because they were sinful. And so the the first establishment you see there in the Exodus, Aaron the high priest is called to go into the tabernacle and on the Day of Atonement to make this sacrifice for the people's sin. But before he could do that, he had to make a sacrifice for his own sin. But Jesus can't do that. Jesus can't make a sacrifice for his own sin because Jesus was without sin. And this is so significant in understanding why Jesus is so great. God did not just bring Jesus, truly God, truly man, into humanity as a 30-something-year-old who lived a few days and then went to the cross we see in the Incarnation, Jesus takes on flesh and He lives a life. And He experiences temptations. And He walks day in and day out in this fallen world surrounded by these temptations. And yet, He is without sin. He's perfect. And he does what Adam And Eve failed to do in the garden. He does what you and I fail to do every day of our lives. He is without sin. And that is why he's the one who can perfectly atone for our sins. He's the one who can pay our sin debt. He's the one who can die on our behalf. And that's exactly what we see he does. And why his ministry is so much greater. Because he's the one of whom we can sing. Jesus paid it. All. All to Him we owe. Well, we're reminded every time we sing that Jesus didn't just pay part of our debt on the cross. Jesus didn't just pay for the sin that we committed before the day we became a Christian. Jesus paid it all. His death was perfectly sufficient for every sin that you and I would ever commit. And when you start to get a glimpse of that glorious truth. Well, then we're reminded of what a wonderful thing it is and what a great high priest he is that the writer here reminded us in Hebrews 7.27, speaking of Jesus, he says he has no need, like those high priests, those Levitical priests, those priests of the old covenant, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. It's a phrase that he repeats three more times. Once for all. He's not on the cross anymore. He's not perpetually suffering in eternity. No, Jesus paid it all. And when we begin to understand this, what a difference it makes in how we live our day-to-day life. Our imperfect lives. Maybe you had a rough week. Maybe you lost your temper this week. Maybe you found yourself gossiping this week. Maybe you slandered somebody this week. Maybe without even thinking about it, you found yourself being untruthful, telling a lie and then telling another lie to cover up that lie. Maybe you found yourself in a situation this week that you've been in before and you've been tempted before, but just the way things happened this week, you just just gave in to that temptation maybe you put something before your eyes before your ears and as you watched it or you listened to it you, you realize I, I don't need to be watching this listening to this and yet you did it anyways you felt like it was just garbage you put in your mind afterwards you felt convicted maybe this week you were reminded of a bitterness you have in your heart towards someone about some unforgiveness you're just harboring. Maybe you were just reminded of some feelings you have that, that aren't Christian-like at all, that, that you're just mad and you're, you're just frustrated. Maybe you found yourself in a situation that as you were thinking about these sales, you began to wonder, can, can I even be a Christian and think this way? And if you did one of those things, or all of those things, then the gospel gives us hope. Because the gospel reminds us that Jesus paid it all. That that we will fall short, that we will disappoint, that we will hurt the people we love, that we will vow to never do something only to turn around and do the very thing we said we'd never do again. But the gospel is the only thing that actually can empower us to turn from that sin, to repent, and to be changed from the inside out. And that is why what Jesus offers us as our great high priest is so much better. Because Jesus doesn't come to us in our sin and say, well, just vow and try harder. Just stop doing that. Do you want to do that? Well, not really. Is it good when you do that? No, it's not. Well, then just stop doing it. I mean, if that was the gospel, friend, then be pretty. let's just stop. But maybe you've come to the reality that there are certain things that you've tried to stop and you couldn't stop. And you've seen the power of sin. And it reminds us that, that we are not the ones who overcome anything, that Jesus is the one who's perfect that jesus is the overcomer and that we place our hope and our trust and our faith in him and as we walk by faith with him well then he empowers us to repent and to turn and to see change in our lives and this is so much better we see as well point three that the high priestly ministry of jesus is better because jesus restores our fellowship with god and this is something to understand. We have to go all the way back to creation because it's there where we see fellowship broken. God there designed a tabernacle, a sanctuary in creation. It was the the garden. And there, in the garden, in perfection, he placed Adam and Eve, and he gave them uh, regulation and rule, and, and told them what they were to do and what they were not to do. And what they were not to do really wasn't a very long list. He he actually just said, "You can enjoy and have pleasure in all that I've created for you," but he gave them a boundary. He gave them dominion, but they didn't have full dominion. He reminded them with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Listen, don't, don't go to this tree, don't eat of this fruit, because when you do, death will come. And we see how they rebelled and how they sinned against God, and when they ate of the fruit of the tree, how immediately that broke their fellowship with God. I mean, previously, there was no need to have a, a lamp stand in the garden. God's light illuminated the garden. That so There were no curtains of separation between the holy place and the most holy place. They dwelt in the presence of God. There was no bronze altar for a sacrifice because there was no sin that needed to be atoned for. And yet in that moment, when they sinned, immediately there became separation as God removed Adam and Eve from His presence. But with that separation became a pro, uh, came a promise. He promised that a day would come when a redeemer would come who would crush the head of the enemy and would restore this perfect fellowship that they had experienced previously with God and that mankind would be able to come back into this fellowship with God. And between that day and the day that Christ would come, he gave them all these pictures and one of them was the picture of the tabernacle. But because there he taught his people that he desired to have fellowship with them. He he wanted to dwell among them. But because of their sin, there would be separation. That there would be a curtain around the whole tabernacle to separate it to set it apart from the people that once they came in there would be a bronze altar and there would be sacrifices there made because of their sin and then there would be another separation between them and a holy place and then a separation between the holy place and the most holy place and only the high priest could go into the most holy place and only once a year to enter into the presence of God and to make that sacrifice for himself and for the people why did God give his people such specific instruction? It's because he was pointing them towards the Redeemer that would come. He was helping them to see what it would be to have fellowship with him one day through Jesus. Because everything we see in the tabernacle points us directly to Jesus. And we see there in the tabernacle that golden lampstand, and it points us to Christ. Christ is the true lampstand, he is the light. In John chapter eight, verse twelve, we read, Jesus said that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We see in the tabernacle there's this table for bread. It, it points us to Jesus, who's the true table of bread. He is the bread of life. John six thirty five, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That picture of the bronze altar. We need no longer. The Hebrews need no longer. Why? Because Jesus is our true and better altar. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13.10, we have an altar and it's Jesus. He is the one who made the true and better sacrifice once for all. And of course, in that picture we have at the crucifixion of jesus where the the curtain in the temple is torn it reminds us that we've been brought back into fellowship with god matthew twenty seven fifty one, and behold the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split why paul tells us in ephesians two thirteen. but now in christ jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of christ just consider that truth for a moment. You who were once far off have been brought near. Have you ever felt distance from God? Have you ever felt undeserving? Have you ever been burdened by sin in your life and felt that that you don't deserve God's grace and God's mercy? Have you ever wondered if God had just abandoned you and you just felt great distance in your relationship with God? Hear again what Paul says in Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by your efforts, by your religion, by your merit. No, by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the blood of Christ once for all that paid our sin debt. And it is through that blood that we can come into God's presence and experience His peace, which is the fourth point there in your outline. This high priestly ministry is better because Jesus alone brings us into God's presence, and into God's peace. In verse 6, the writer says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry, again, that, that perfect ministry, that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. God's word is filled with so many promises to those who have placed their faith in Christ. He promises among many things to bring us into perfect fellowship with the Father and he's the only one who can do that. That's why Jesus says very clearly in John fourteen six, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God has given us a perfect provision. It is not our effort, it is not our vows, and it's not our religion. It is His Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we can come into the presence of God. But it's only through Jesus. And if we will accept that offer, then we will receive His peace. John goes on in that same chapter record Jesus' words in John 14, 27 where He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Friend, have you ever found that your heart was troubled? Have you ever experienced what it was to be Afraid? Have you ever found a situation? Maybe you're in one now, where where you just lacked peace? Where where you didn't have peace, you couldn't really sleep at night, you just didn't have peace. Well, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus offers us peace, and it's not a peace that the world offers us. And the world sells us a false bill of goods. The world tells us, well, if you'll just do this, it'll give you peace. If you do this, it'll give you peace. If you'll do this, and yet we find ourselves wanting. No, Jesus offers us true and lasting peace that cannot be taken away. You can't lose it. You think about that truth for a moment. You, you can't lose this peace Jesus offers. You can lose so much in this world that you can lose relationships, You can lose jobs. You can lose every dime you ever worked for and saved up. You you can lose so much. You can lose your good name, your reputation. You can lose your health. You can lose the people that you love. But if you genuinely follow Jesus Christ, you will not lose the peace because the peace that He gives is everlasting peace we may struggle at times to have that peace we may struggle with anxiety and worry and doubt and that's why we come to the scripture and we come to this reminder to turn to him and to trust in him if you've never turned to jesus then we invite you this lord's day as we do every lord's day here at bloomfield baptist to turn to trust in him We don't have a list of do's and don'ts. We don't have 800 commandments for you to follow. We have the word of God where he says to us that if anyone will confess Jesus is Lord and if anyone believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. And there's nothing that will give us more joy today than to celebrate your salvation with you. We invite you to come. We invite you to confess. We invite you to believe. Many of you have done that. You have placed your trust in Jesus, but perhaps you are lacking peace today because you're not trusting him. You're placing your hope, your trust somewhere else. You're invited to come as well to trust and to experience the peace that only he can offer. So if you would stand with me as we pray and as we offer this time of response to God's word. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the reminder from it that that Jesus offers us something the world cannot, that he offers a better covenant and a better hope and better promises. And so, Lord, I pray in this moment when so much can distract us and when so much can cause our minds to wander. I pray this would be a very sobering moment when your spirit would be at work. And that in this moment, we would truly each ask that question, are we trusting in Christ? Are we trusting in anything else? And if we find we're placing our trust anywhere else, Lord, I pray that through the power of your spirit, we would turn and trust in Jesus. I pray, God, that you would give us a peace that only Christ can give. And we ask this in the only name in which we can ask it, in the name of Jesus. Amen.